lead to another Your Amigos podcast. Uh, we're doing a paper of the month um, now, and Tanya Dorf is with us uh, for uh, uh, talazoparib uh, monotherapy and metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, recent Lancet Oncology publication. Tanya, welcome. Thanks for joining us. If you want to give us sort of brief introduction, relevant conflicts, and then maybe just give us sort of a, a sentence or two about the basic design of the trial, that'd be great. Sure. Hi, uh, this is Tanya Dorf. I'm a medical oncologist um, and section chief of the genitourinary cancer program at City of Hope near Los Angeles. You're very welcome, Tanya. So the Talapro-1 study, uh, which was just published in Lancet Oncology, uh, was, you know, a, a phase two single arm open label study testing um, what we believe is a very, very effective PARP inhibitor, telosoparib, in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who harbor uh, DNA repair alterations. And so take us behind, maybe just give us sort of a sentence, high-level summary. This was a single-arm phase two trial, and it was in patients who had one of several, one of several potential mutations, correct? Right of 11 genes ultimately um, that were included in the study. And it was dominated by, as one might anticipated, um, but there was a reason of PALB2 and also ATM. And I guess one of the questions from our perspective, there was activity and there were responses and PARP inhibition in prostate cancer has got a really strong kind of I don't, you know, press at the moment. There was a press release with the laparib um, in unselected patients uh, with CRPC. Um, are we, you know, it, what, what's going on with this biomarker? Is it all around BRCA2? Are there other components which are relevant? Some people cynically say, well, if by bringing in other biomarkers, you can broaden the net and treat more patients, but they may or may not benefit. Have we nailed the, the biomarker story in, in prostate cancer? Well, I certainly... Not. So right now, it's really a very small subset of patients who can benefit from PARP inhibitors as currently defined by Olaparib in the profound study and as well with the other PARP inhibitors. You know, 1,400 some patients were screened to identify the 120 who were eligible. Um, so we would like to find biomarkers that would expand that group allow more patients to potentially benefit. So, you know, there's been some work done on BRCA-NES, right? Like trying to find other types of cellular changes that might make a cell. And then there's a very interesting story evolving around um, PARP regulation of androgen receptor signaling. Um, so you know, Karen Knutson's done some work showing that uh, downstream targets of AR, including um, things like Tempris 2, uh, that their expression is impacted by PARP inhibition. So I think we very much need to continue to explore biomarkers. And Tanya, Tanya when you, you go, I was going to I was gonna say, Tom, currently, so I'm looking at, at the table in the paper, and it looked like, as you say, most of the responses were confined to, to BRCA1 or 2. That response rate was almost 50%, whereas responses in everything else was fairly anecdotal. I think maybe just three responses. So I guess just thinking currently about applying this to practice, I mean, would you, 
Would you give this agent or perhaps similar agents broadly if patients had any mutation or would you confine it more to, to BRCA? Well, so I think it's pretty impressive to see um, complete responses, uh, radiograph in, you know, one of the ATM patients granted one out of 17, but 25% of the PALB2 had uh, confirmed partial responses. So I wouldn't write off the other subsets yet. Um, you know, there was a lot of disease stabilization. The pre survival was quite impressive, um, although, again, truly dominated by BRCA. But mm -hmm. um, I think um, what we need to really do is look at maybe using this drug differently, maybe in combination, maybe in earlier phase of the disease to try to leverage some of its other properties. Tanya, the way the EMA is going to look at this, I suspect, is they're going to come out and say, it's all good and well, you picking the biomarkers you like, but we're interested in those which clearly are of benefit. And BRCA2 appears to be dominating. You know, it's the, it is the, the Jupiter of, um, of, the, uh, of, of the solar system of DNA repair biomarkers. And, um, uh, and perhaps some of the other ones look much more like Titan or Mars. I'm somewhat <laughs> insignificant. Does Jupiter to dominate the solar system? I don't know what that analogy means. <laughs> I think it does, Brian. I think you should be. Okay. You should. What did you? I mean, I imagine you did a little bit of this at school. But you see, you're funny. It's actually <laughs> if you put all the other planets together, it's still bigger than. Uh, I, see, I see. So it, okay. yeah, it does. It's, it's a very please. fair analogy, Brian. Yeah, please go on, fair. please. Unlike the Irish analogy in the last one, which I'm still sorry <laughs> for, for all of those emails I got from the Irish community. <laughs> I, I apologize. Um, I'm they're, still they're, and clear, you know, I think at first we're going to be using this largely in BRCA mutated metastatic castrosis and prostate cancer patients, but I hope um, there will continue to be work to find additional utility for the drug. And I'm, you know, doing part of that work. So, you know, whatever the regulatory agencies decide as the biomarker, we're all going to, you know, play nicely in the sandbox, but it doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Tanya, are we barking up completely the wrong tree in that getting going back to tissue banks, fishing out biomarkers that might have been taken years in advance? Um, is that just, you know, should we be using circulating biomarkers? We can look at these DNA alterations um, for the uh, for these what we, we described as a DDR type panel which is yet to be defined, you know, do we, and then the second question I've got is, do we need as a group to get together and agree what a real DDR panel is, or should we just let different groups explore different biomarkers? Well, I do think going back and digging out additional biomarkers seems like a, a Herculean effort that may not yield huge dividends. Um, I think where we're more likely to find success in combination strategies or in earlier stage disease. So, you know, if PARP inhibition impacts AR signaling, then there's reason to believe using it upfront prior to castration resistance might have the PARP inhibitor serve a different function. Now, clearly, Tanya, you don't know the results of the AZ CRPC first line trial um, where it's abiraterone versus abiraterone plus PARP, I think is the trial design. We know from the press release that's positive, and we also know that's in unselected patients. Are we just going to ditch this biomarker altogether? Obviously, we need to look at the results of the trial, and clearly don't talk about them if you know them. I assume you don't, but, but if you do, please don't. But 
what what um what we someone once did that on one of I think on one of our podcasts. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very popular podcast. That <laughs> so so, so um, what's your uh, what's your take on um on on that issue of that trial? Is because again, you might argue that if it's working in unselected patients, we're barking up the wrong tree with a biomarker. Yeah, it's going to get complicated, isn't it? Um, I think we need to see the data because it could be that there was a component of um, DNA repair altered patients that drove the benefit. Um, We certainly are going to want to drill down and see what the genomics show in this population. And I think there still may be room for different approaches um, for different patient populations. I don't think we will end up using uh, this combination for everyone. I certainly hope not. I think we're starting to see really interesting uh, biomarker stories emerge, whether it's the PAM50, luminal basal, or specific genes that might tell us someone who doesn't need the PARP inhibitor because they do really, really well with the AR-targeted agent. We know there's some toxicity that comes from PARP inhibitors. I will excited to have a broader population that could benefit from the combination, but I don't think we're just going to write off biomarkers altogether. I hope quite the that we'll be increasingly using them to analyze our treatment plan. Is it, is it possible maybe that earlier on in the course of disease, you might, might use the biomarker? This is probably in distinction to what Tom just said about those results, but, but earlier on, you're going to use the biomarker because those patients have a higher likelihood of benefit via BRCA or, or anything else. Whereas later in the disease, which is where the, the Lancet Oncology paper was, even if the responses are rare, those patients have very limited treatment options. So you, you might just try that more broadly. Is that, is that fair? That's interesting. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense or not. I just sort of, as I think about it. I mean, be rude if you like, Tanya. It's not the first bad <laughs> question he's asked. You know, it's, <laughs> no, it's, not- it's challenging thinking about PARP inhibitors because, you know, we are Anytime. actually studying them. I'm sorry? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, we're actually studying them in medicine. Patients, unselected um, because of some very interesting preclinical work that looks like they may prune aggressive clones early on. Um, so to try to, you know, get rid of the bad that evolve um, when castration system evolves. So if you're right, then my trial will be a failure. <laughs> so I'm hoping you're wrong. <laughs> or, or maybe it's the exact opposite, right? That you would try them broadly up front for the reasons you mentioned. And plus those patients have you know, time, if you will, to try other things, whereas very late in the course of a disease, you know, if you're choosing between this and somebody else, that patient may just have one shot left. So you may want to target it more. Yeah. And it may be that there are so many changes that the disease has evolved through castration resistance and through multiple lines of therapy that, you know, this isn't the dominant strategy that the, the yeah. very sensitive to. Tanya, are all are all PARP inhibitors the same? I'm, I'm just been I did a little bit of reading too for a change, and I was reading about Alaparib, which has got a lot of data in this space. Data and Alaparib, there's Naraparib there. There are different. Are they all the same, or are they like VEGF targeted therapies, which actually have some nuanced differences between each other? Well, pharmacologically speaking, you can certainly quantify differences uh, between the PARP inhibitors. Um, and t- as perhaps the strongest inhibitor, it does more trapping 
than some of the other agents. Um, I, I think it's hard to tell from individual experiences whether there's a difference in efficacy because these patient populations are probably quite different. I mean, in Telepro 1, half the patients had had two different taxane lines of treatment. They were very and I, I think that's probably not quite who was treated in profound, right? So we can't really try to look across trials, and we're never supposed to do that anyway, although everyone sort of does in their <laughs> presentations, right? But whether it's uh, more effective or less toxic, I think, um, would be worth studying, right? Because wouldn't it be great if we had a PARP inhibitor that we got the most bang for our buck out of and the least toxicity. And, you know, in my experience during Telepro 1, I was really quite impressed, not only with the efficacy, but the relative lack of toxicity. Although I think when you look at the published tables, you, you see, you know, kind of similar rates of anemia, perhaps as with the other drugs. Tanya, what is there the any, reason, any reason to believe that if a patient failed one PARP inhibitor, they would respond to another, either in immediate sequence or later on? You know, I'm so interested in that question to some of my women's cancer colleagues to see, because, you know, they're ahead of us in, in many ways, um, whether they think there's any utility for one PARP after another. And they, they had really a lack of enthusiasm for that. Tanya, the adverse event profile, someone get, sometimes we get clues from the efficacy signal associated with adverse events with different drugs. So that Jeff being obviously an on-target adverse event associated with with uh oh, sorry hypertension being an on-target adverse event associated with VEGF targeted therapy where some others perhaps being off target do we get any clues from the efficacy signal around adverse events what are the adverse events in your experience well that's a genius question and i'm sure someone's gonna genius question no helpful congratulations yeah <laughs> and uh look at that because it gets maybe on target since it's shared, you know, anemia, that is, um, it's shared across all the PARP inhibitors. Um, so really the, the only grade three and four toxicities, I mean, the most common grade four toxicities are hematologic, uh, very few grade four in the Talapalan experience, but, you know, 31% of patients with grade and about a third of patients requiring a blood transfusion. So, I hope um, it's not <laughs> partnered to efficacy because, you know, our patients really do feel that anemia and that might limit enthusiasm for very broadly if we're going to end up needing to use a lot of transfusions. Um, but otherwise, the safety profile really is very, very similar across the, the class of drugs. When you look at the numbers, um, direct comparisons, of course, pending. So, Tony, do you want to talk, you presented some CTC work in this paper, and it looks like maybe not surprisingly, most of the responders were the converters of, of more than five to less than five cells or other parameters. Do you want to talk about those results and maybe if they're helpful in, I don't know, selecting patients or monitoring patients? It's so sad that circulating tumor cells have so little relevance. I mean, we all know they're important and they're dependent, prognostic indicator um, compared to just looking at PSA. Since we don't have measurable, it's really nice to have, but not really in daily practice. So I don't know um, how impactful that will be when this rolls out into patient care, right? But 
certainly it um, is a proof of principle. It, it helps support the story that this is a very effective treatment. Um, only 21 patients had more than five cells at baseline. Um, and of those 81% converted. And so we know that that's significant indicator that they're benefiting, but, um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but we're, we're not able to get circulating tumor cells in our patients and, and try to really use them in our practice. Tanya, the, I, the principle of synthetic lethality is DNA targeted. Many chemotherapy agents are also DNA targeted. When one looks at this principle of targeting DNA, and I realize there are differences between the way chemotherapy and PARP inhibitors work, is there a rationale for combining with chemotherapy, um, number one? And number two is, was there potential cross-resistance between the two? Yeah, so, you know, again, um, not to rely too heavily on Karen Knudsen's work, but um, she really did explore how PARP inhibitors with AR, and one of the aspects that she looked at was whether it destabilized the cells in a way that made them sensitive to keep um, also to radiation. So I do think that provides a rationale for combination studies. And, um, you know, Raina McKay has a study looking at PARP inhibitor together with radium-223. I think it'll be really interesting um, if this is radiosensitizing to look at other radiopharmaceuticals, obviously like lutetium-177, PSMA, um, NRG, uh, cooperative group for radiation oncology is studying niraparib together with definitive radiation and hormone therapy in very high-risk localized prostate cancer patients. Um, and I'm sure there are chemotherapy combination studies also that I, I don't know of offhand quite as well, but um, there's definitely to study this in combination, and that may be where it ends up having its biggest impact. Do you want to talk about your trial? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, if you look at one, um, you know, just some concerted efforts on the part of the sponsor, there's very limited um, diversity, right? There was, I think, 3% Black and, and 4% um, Asian patients. And, and that really means that we're missing out on opportunities to find biology that might drive responsiveness to this treatment outside of the traditional predictors. So uh, we're doing a study of first-line metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients receiving ADT plus abiraterone, and we're adding talazolamide uh, with a goal of enrolling 30% American and 30% Asian patients um, we're going to be studying androgen receptor triplicate repeats, uh, which do vary among different uh, groups, different backgrounds, um, and do have impact on AR function that we think might impact. So we're hoping to increase, um, you know, from the Matsubara analysis of latitude, that 55% PSA nadir uh, to less than 0. Predictive for overall survival, we're, we're aiming to increase that to increase the number of men who get a good deep remission that on track for for long cancer control. Tanya, last question for me, just about sort of the, the future of this drug. Obviously, you just mentioned some of it, but I don't know if if you know or able to say if these data will be submitted to to regulatory agencies for approval. You know, based on a single arm trial, and there's some 
at least one phase three trial or maybe two mentioned in the article, if you just want to touch on those in terms of what's coming. Being a relative small potato, I don't have inside information about whether they're going straight for approval with the phase two. Um, I should probably make it my business to know that. Um, but <laughs> the ongoing studies are in combination. Um, so, for example, with enzalutamide um, in uh, resistant first line disease. So, um, there's going to be, you know, a need, presumably if Abby works well with Olaparib, but some patients can't get abiraterone um, for, let's say, their comorbidity reasons, and zalutamide-based um, combination also that's successful to provide options to providers. So um, that'll be an interesting study to see how that reports out. And of course, we really want to see the the abiolaparib data too. My last question, Tanya, too, is where do you see yourself using these drugs in, let's say, and I know it depends a bit on the, 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 the furniture and where it's placed, but where do you see yourself using these drugs at the moment with the information you have, assuming you could use the drugs and they had regulatory approval? Where, where, where is the space? Is the activity enough to convince you to give it to patients as it currently stands? And if that is the case, where would it be? Definitely use these drugs. And I, I sequence my patients with the hope of finding an alteration that predicts for benefit from a PARP inhibitor. And I think there's a lot of discussion about whether it should be sequenced before or after chemotherapy. You know, granted, in most of the clinical trials that have reported out thus far, um, patients are primarily chemotherapy pretreated. But it's very appealing in our own practices when someone's progressed on Abby or Enza and is relatively asymptomatic and functional to you know, want to use an oral therapy that might not tether them to our clinics or might not cause as many as jumping to chemotherapy. So I'm hopeful that we will get some data uh, that helps us decide whether there is an optimal sequence before versus after chemotherapy. Um, and ideally, you know, it'd be nice to have some flexibility so that we use the, the right patient for the right patient in the right moment. Hey, Tanya, this has been great. Thanks a lot. We think you're a big potato. So thank you for joining us. And uh, appreciate <laughs> I think that's right. For those <laughs> Better than Tom's potato. Jupiter analogy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking about the paper. We appreciate it. Tanya, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Terrific. Bye-bye. Take care.